Well, this morning we're continuing with our series on the Lord's Prayer. And if you've got a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 9 to 13. We call this the Lord's Prayer, but someone has pointed out that actually John chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer, that great high priestly prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples and all his followers down through the ages uh, on the night uh, before his death. Matthew chapter 6 isn't the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that Jesus used himself, rather it's the disciples' prayer. A prayer that Jesus expects his disciples, his followers, you and me, to pray. And as we saw last week, this isn't a prayer that Jesus expects us to rattle off daily, off by heart. Uh, This is a pattern for prayer, the scaffolding on which we hang our prayers. And so it's worthwhile, I believe, spending a few weeks going slowly through this prayer. Uh, This isn't an exhaustive study of the prayer. Hopefully it's not an exhausting study. Uh, As one writer points out, there are depths to this prayer that we will never plumb. But I do hope just to give a few pointers and reminders that I trust God will use to grow us in our life of prayer. So let's have a look again. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Our Lord Jesus says to us, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. So we saw last week how the Lord's Prayer consists of two equal parts with three requests in each part. We have three relating to God and then three relating to ourselves. And this morning we're going to focus on the three requests relating to God in verses 9 and 10. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So often in prayer, when we sit down, we dive straight into telling God what we want. (laughs) And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. God is our loving Father who delights to hear from us, and we are his children who are totally dependent upon him for everything. However, as we saw last week, the opening lines of this prayer reorientate us. They move us away from ourselves and back to God. And prayer that begins with God transforms the rest of our prayer too. One writer puts it this way. He says, prayer that doesn't start with God is always in danger of concentrating on ourselves. Very soon it stops being prayer altogether and collapses into the random thoughts, fears, and longings of our own minds. So let's have a look at these three phrases one at a time. Firstly, Jesus tells us we're to pray, hallowed be your name. Now, this is the phrase in the 
prayer that most children get wrong because they're unfamiliar with the words. So I heard about one five-year-old who prayed, Our Father who shouts from heaven, Hello, what is your name? Or, or the little girl who was convinced that God's first name was Harold, as in Harold be your name. What does this phrase mean, hallowed be your name? Well, in biblical times, your name was very important. It wasn't just a label that you attached to yourself. It represented your character, who you were. Uh, That's why on occasion God changed people's names in the Bible. Uh, Abram to Abraham, or Isaac to Israel, or Simon to Peter, because their very person had changed. So the name of God doesn't simply mean the three letters, G-O-D, or even his revealed name, Yahweh, I am that I am. Rather, the name of God represents the person behind the name, God's nature and character. And to a certain extent, that's true of any name. If I were to shout out someone's name, you immediately would have some kind of reaction Even if it's only on a subconscious level, you have a mental picture of that person. Some of their characteristics come to mind. You have an emotional response. There may even be some words that come to mind that describe that person. So the name of God means God himself. And what we're praying here is that God's name, God himself, would be hallowed. In other words, treated as holy. The word holy means set apart, different from anything or anyone else. Now, God's name is already holy because he has a name that is above every other name. In the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, we read how the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God and there are these living creatures, seraphim, around God and the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. God's name, God himself, is already holy. What we're asking here is that God would be treated as holy. This verse does speak to the appalling habits that filmmakers and television producers and actors and actresses have of using the name of Jesus as a swear word. Uh, To me, the fact that it's only the name Jesus that's used as a curse speaks volumes What is it about this man's name that you would use it as a curse? There must be something special about it, and therefore something special about him. To me, it's one of the greatest arguments for the truth of Christianity. But as I've got older, and Jesus has become more precious to me, so to hear his name abused and belittled becomes more and more painful. But we're not asking merely that God's name be hallowed by the world in general, as much as we long for that. We're praying that God's name would be hallowed by us, by me. Lord, may you be holy in my life. May the relationship that I have with you through your son, Jesus Christ, be different from any other relationship that I have. May you be my Lord, my master, my commander-in-chief. In First in Peter chapter 3, Peter writes to a group of Christians in the province of Asia, and he says to them, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. And that's what I'm doing when I pray, 
hallowed be your name. I'm setting apart Christ as Lord, as the most important in my life. And this isn't simply a once-off prayer that I've said it once and that settles it. No, this is a prayer that we need to pray every day. You may notice that in verse 11, Jesus says we're to pray, give us today our daily bread. So he's expecting that we're going to pray this prayer each day. And as much as I need bread for each day, so also do I need to pray that God's name, his person, will be hallowed in my life. And not merely at the beginning of each day, but throughout the day, subconsciously asking, in this situation, in this conversation, in this interaction, what will bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus? You see, the problem is that I've got a name as well, don't I? As Pastor John Stott points out, it's a characteristic of our fallen human nature that we are vitally concerned with our own little name. And you can test this for yourself. If you go back to your old high school and you walk down that corridor with all of the photographs of the matric students from each year and you stop in front of your year, who is the photo or who is the picture that you look for first? It's you. You want to try and find yourself in the photo. Or there's the group photo of the office staff or the church camp. Who do you look for first? You. We like to see our name, whether it's on a nice brass plaque at the office or whether it's in the newspaper or in the school magazine. We want our name to look good. We like to make a name for ourselves. We like to get a name for this or that or the other. And equally, we're concerned and agitated when our name is tarnished, when people gossip about us and try to damage our name. We're concerned and preoccupied with our name. But as a Christian, my primary concern should not be with my name, but rather with God's name. Lord, may your name be treated as holy in my life. and May your name be glorified through my life. Secondly, in this prayer, not only should I be concerned with God's name, but I should be concerned with God's rule. Your kingdom come. Lord, may you reign. Now again, just as God's name is already holy, so God already reigns. Now these words don't refer to God's ultimate sovereignty whereby he rules the universe. We're not praying, God, don't drop anything. God already reigns. In the words of Ephesians 1, God is the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. No, what we're praying is that God's rule and reign will be extended, and in at least three areas. Firstly, as one writer points out, we're praying for God to extend his control in the lives of those who are at present rebels against his love. It's a prayer for the spread of the gospel. And notice that this is something that we're asking God to do. Now, now we do have a part to play. We have a responsibility to share the gospel through our words and through our lives. But ultimately, God does the heavy lifting here. He is the one who's at work. 
Some of you may be aware of the fact that there appears to be a revival breaking out in the Aysbury University campus in Kentucky in America. Uh, it's a Christian university, and every Wednesday they have a chapel service in some of the students' bunk. And on Wednesday, the 8th of February, they had a chapel service, and after they'd sung the closing song, the students stayed, singing and worshipping and praying and they stayed, and they stayed, and they stayed. And as far as I know, they are still there. It's deeply moving to see. But what was particularly significant to me was watching the video of the chapel service that initiated the revival. Somebody sent out a YouTube link to what the preacher had said. And of course, being a preacher, I thought, well, what, what was this great message that was shared? And it was just an ordinary message. The speaker was an ordinary college pastor, uh, just as uh, young adult pastors can be. Occasionally he was a little bit, to me, um, towards the edge. But he spoke very simply on Romans chapter 12 and the need for Christian love in the light of Christ's love for us. There was no hype, no yelling, no smoke machines or laser lights or impressive PowerPoints. From a human perspective, there is absolutely nothing at all to explain why university students are still sat in the chapel experiencing and practicing the presence of God, which is precisely why it appears to be a genuine work of God. As uh, the founder of I think, Scripture Union put it, um, if you can explain it, then God didn't do it. We are called to preach the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus with words and with actions. I hope that you know that each one of us here this morning are full-time Christian workers. You are a hospital chaplain, or you're a school chaplain, or you're a company chaplain, or you're a chaplain to a retirement home, or you're the pastor of a small home group. And at the same time, uh, as we are sharing and preaching and uh, living out the gospel, uh, we recognize that it is God who works, that while we plant and water, it is God who makes things grow. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, and he describes it like this. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its, in its shade. The kingdom of God is growing slowly, sometimes unseen, but it's growing. And so we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come. May more and more people come into a relationship with Jesus. Secondly, the prayer, your kingdom come, reflects one of the earliest prayers of the Christian church. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. You'll remember the second last line in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. We read how the Lord Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And the response of the church is, amen, yes, Lord, so be it. Come, Lord Jesus. And we're asking, we're reminding ourselves that one day we will see Jesus face to face. He's, uh, he's created us specifically for this relationship with him. We get to live with him this side of the curtain for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and then we spend eternity with him. 
And this prayer reminds us that one day God's kingdom will come and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So we pray for gospel expansion. We pray for Jesus' return. But there's a third, a more personal element to the prayer, your kingdom come. We're asking that God's reign and rule will extend in our own hearts and lives. You see, the problem is that while we have a name, we also have a kingdom too. I've got a kingdom. Your kingdom is that little sphere in which what you say goes. Your kingdom is the range of your effective will. Actually, it's only what's inside of me and this that I possess that is actually my kingdom. I can really only control me, but we like to test and see how far we can expand our kingdom, can't we? Uh, If you have two children in the back of the car, what is one thing that they often do? They work out where their kingdom is. They draw a line down the back of the back seat. This is my kingdom, and that's your kingdom. And you'd better not come into my kingdom. And then they have a wall over their kingdoms. Dad, he's in my part of the car. And then what happens? Well, Dad turns around and says, do you want me to come back there? Because Dad thinks that the whole car is his kingdom. (laughs) I have a kingdom, and I get very upset when my kingdom is challenged. And that's why it's very difficult to pray this phrase of the prayer, because what am I doing? I'm giving up my kingdom. Lord, may your kingdom come in my life. There are areas of my life where you are not in control. I'm trying to handle that part of my life on my own, or I'm hiding that part of my life from you, Lord. Lord, may your kingdom come in my marriage. Lord, may, you rule, may your rule extend in my home. Lord, may your rule extend in our church. Lord, may your rule extend in our world. And then thirdly, as followers of Jesus, not only should our primary concern be for God's name and for his kingdom, but our concern should be for his will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, only Jesus knew the huge disparity between God's will on earth and God's will as it is in heaven. One commentator says that in heaven, God's will is obeyed by all, spontaneously, with the deepest joy, and in a perfect manner, without a shadow of unfaithfulness. And that's what we're asking will happen when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The problem is that we've got a will too, Just as I've got a name, just as I've got a kingdom, so I also have a will. I want my will, my way. I know how things should be run. I could do it better, sometimes even better than God. It's interesting that even Jesus had a will of his own. And even Jesus, who'd always submitted his will to the will of his Father, even Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane with the Blood, sweat, sweat like drops of blood, prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So this isn't blind fatalism. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, what it will be. We're allowed to struggle with God in prayer. We're allowed to ask him for things. We have accounts in the Bible where prayer seemingly changes God. 
But ultimately, we can rest in praying, your will be done. We have absolutely nothing to fear in desiring the will of God in our lives, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God loves us in perfect wisdom. And as Pastor John Stott puts it, to lose ourselves in the will of God is to find ourselves, to find our true selves. It is sometimes difficult to know how to pray according to God's will, isn't it? Particularly when we or others feel that they know exactly what God's will is in the situation. You know, here is a beloved family member lying seriously ill. How do we pray? I came across a prayer recently based on Romans chapter 8 that I think might be helpful in those situations. Uh, The writer prayed using Paul's words in that magnificent chapter. Dear Heavenly Father, we do not know what you know. We do not know what is best, all things considered, as you do. We do not know how to pray, but we deeply desire the healing of this dear one. And we know that you can heal her. So we affirm our trust in you, in your goodness, your power, and your wisdom, while we ask for healing. And we rest in this knowledge that all things do work together for good to those who love you. Your spirit intercedes for us according to your will. Our hearts are strengthened by the knowledge that our present sufferings cannot compare with the glory that will be revealed in us. And we anxiously await the day when creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and our bodies will be redeemed. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is our confidence in you. And how awesome will your victory over sin and sickness and death be when we all are finally raised to newness of life as guaranteed by the resurrection of your Son and our Savior through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. That's a a good prayer to pray when we're not sure of God's will. But just on a practical level as, as we close, in the words of one Bible commentator, if we're going to pray, your will be done, then we're committing ourselves to two vitally important responsibilities. First, we're committing ourselves to learning all we can about God's will. And that means sustained and humble study of the scriptures in which God has revealed his will to us. What are the themes of the books of Zechariah or Galatians? What do we learn about God's character from the book of Exodus or Ephesians? We're in God's word learning his will. And then our second responsibility, if my heart's hunger is that God's will be done, then praying this prayer is also my pledge that so help me God, by his grace I will do his will as much as I know it. There's so much more that we could look at in these brief phrases. We've barely scratched the surface. But in our prayers and in our lives this week, we need to ensure that we are most concerned for the honoring of God's name, not mine. The advancement of God's kingdom, not my own. And the obeying of God's will, not my own. Let's pray together.